The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is the Deputy Speaker of Federal Parliament and Member for Wide Bay, Lou O'Brien. After a 15-year career as a Queensland police officer, Lou O'Brien took over the seat vacated by the retiring Warren Truss and he's had a rapid rise through the parliamentary ranks after backing a failed leadership spill to topple Michael McCormack in favour of Barnaby Joyce. He then announced he would no longer sit in the Nationals' party room but remain in the LNP and support the government. He was then unexpectedly nominated for a position by Labor that would see him chair federal parliament. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Lou O'Brien, welcome to Over the Bonnet. It's great to be here, Mark. Good to uh, see you. We haven't caught up for quite a while, so it's always good to come out to the ranch and, and say good day. It has been a while. Now, we'll go back to the start of your parliamentary career first up. What got you into politics? Well, politics was something I've been passionate about for a long time. Uh, I've always been passionate about politics uh, my whole adult life. And uh, But it was probably in the early to mid-2000s that I started to become quite um, active and, uh, and joined a political party because of uh, the job that I was doing, which was road safety, um, inve- accident investigation. Uh, and I, I just felt that uh, being involved was a way to facilitate positive change when it came to our road transport system and making it safer. So I joined the, joined the National Party uh, back then and uh, was very enthusiastic about it. And it's something I enjoyed, something that uh, I'd encourage others to do as well. And uh, yeah, and then eventually, uh, my uh, predecessor and friend and mentor Warren Truss, um, who was the deputy prime minister, had made the decision that he was going to retire, and he approached me and said, "Lou, I think you'd be a good replacement for for him." And I had to give it some serious thought because it is a big decision going into public life, and uh, after talking with my wife Sharon and, and my family and Warren and, and particularly Warren's wife Lynn Truss who's a, a great friend of mine uh, I decided to give it a go and run for pre-selection. Must have been a big thing though having the blessing of the sitting member and the Deputy Prime Minister. Yeah it, it was it was. I've never seen myself as somebody uh, that uh, should be held out uh, in public life as uh, as some uh, I suppose uh, I suppose I always looked at Warren as being something special. He was an enigma. He was he was a, a man of great conviction and across the detail of of policy and and obviously he he went as high as you can go in the national party in terms of parliamentary service so I always saw Warren as as something great and uh, when I when he asked me to be to replace him I uh, I had to give it some thought because I wondered whether I was that guy I, I see myself as very much a uh, uh, an everyday normal bloke are you that guy 
<laughs> I mean, that's for others to judge. That's for others to judge. I've done some things in Parliament that have made me stand out, um, and I've been re-elected by the people of Wide Bay, so they obviously liked what I was doing. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's not for me to judge whether I'm that guy. It's it's for the people of Wide Bay. Surely, who I serve. though, I understand that um, it is, and you have been elected, but. What sort of a job do you think you're doing? Give yourself well, a report card. I suppose I'm certainly uh, standing up for what I believe in. Uh, no one can accuse me of uh, hiding away and, and not taking on difficult issues. And I really do believe and feel that I'm in parliament to serve the people of Wide Bay and and Australia. I'm not there for uh, personal ambition. Are too many people like that, that they are in there for their own, you know, a lot of people say that politicians are trying to feather their own nest. Mm -hmm. Do you find that? Absolutely. But you'll never go into a workplace where there's more ambition than there is in Parliament. It is a, it is chock full of people who all believe they should be and can be the Prime Minister. Uh, and that's not going to be the case for a lot of them. Um, I've never seen myself like that. All I've seen myself is an absolute champion for people from... Well, we know you're an absolute bay. champion, but can you be Deputy Prime Minister? Is that on the radar? It's not It's not something that, uh, that I... Look... I don't strive to be the Deputy Prime Minister, and I, I, but if, if in the course of me doing what I do, people made that decision and, and decided that I was somebody like Warren did for me uh, when, he resi- when he retired, if someone uh, thought that I was that person, well, of course I would look at it, but it's absolutely not something I, I have on my list of things to do while I'm serving the people of Wide Bay in, in Parliament. Especially with Warren being the Deputy Prime Minister, it's a great platform for you to aspire to that sort of office. It must be that sort of ambition that drives you, though, in some ways. Any, anyone can see that it's a great honour to be in a position in public service where um, pe- the Australian people believe that you should be there as the Prime Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister, or whatever the, the case may be. But you never underestimate the immense satisfaction of helping an individual or helping many individuals. And you can do that in the way that I've done it as a, on the back bench, whether it be when I brought about the uh, Royal Commission into the banks and the financial the thing, services sector. You were sector. A, a thorn in the side of Malcolm Turnbull. Well, every good politician or every good uh, parliamentarian really should be a thorn in the side of their leader. If they're not, they need to think about why they're there. And it is quite a competitive place. But I've, I've always identified what, uh, what the goal is, and that's helping people, and then I've gone after it. And that's why I don't expect to be the Deputy Prime Minister or I don't expect uh, to be uh, a senior, senior Cabinet Minister because I do things in a way that I get the job done but uh, potentially those those opportunities won't come my way. They could, but we'll see. But I'm not going to change from what I do, and that's what I think is right and what I think is fundamentally best for Wide Bay. You've been in for a few years, four or five years now. What's the biggest single achievement that you think you've gotten across the line since you've been in the chair? Well, there's been a few big events. So as I 
uh, said before, I was instrumental in bringing on a Royal Commission into the financial services sector and, and the banks. That was a big, a big call and a big move. And there were, whilst I, not for a minute do I think the outcomes of that are perfect, but they certainly gave the banks and the big end of the financial services sector a wake-up call that there were people in Parliament who would pull them on uh, and uh, cause something like that Royal Commission, and that's what they always need to think. Why do you think Malcolm Turnbull didn't want it? Uh, You'd have to ask Malcolm Turnbull that. But the banks were putting profits before people. There is absolutely no doubt about that, and that was uh, on full display in the Royal Commission. So that, that would be one of the big things that I would identify. The other one is one that's very close to my heart, and that is... Um, upgrading the Bruce Highway around Gympie for so when I managed to achieve funding for Section D of the Karoi Dakara bypass that's a billion dollars and it was something that a lot of people said wasn't going to come our way in the in the time frame that well, they were saying day. 20 years they were saying 20 years and and they were saying uh, in Canberra that uh, you know this is where people say you you're on the back bench you'll shut up and uh, be seen and not heard. And, do they and say that? Do they actually? Do you have to po- t- do you have to toe the party line? Well, I think I've proved not. <laughs> but th- there is, without telling you to shut up. Obviously, they don't say shut up and be seen and not heard. But there are ways and means of of certainly doing that. And and I I just refuse to be quiet on an issue that first and foremost is about safety and families and and lives on our roads uh, and that will is obviously to benefit the people of my my region the region that's voted me in to go down there and do a job for them that's a biggie though this one with the uh, section d of the the bypass Mm. when is it expected to be up and running and operational. So we're looking around 2024. The, we had the sod turning recently at the commencement of it. And uh, so it, it's commenced, it's going. And it'll be about four to five years now. Uh, they've got to factor in potential unforeseen delays. Everything going smoothly. We should be seeing that open in 2024, which will be great for Gympie. It'll be great for road safety. I think that's the biggest thing is road safety for people travelling north. Yeah, definitely. Uh, You know, I live on the Bruce Highway north of Gympie and over this Christmas period there's been days where I've heard in excess of five to ten emergency vehicles going past with their sirens on. Uh, and they're going to accidents. Um, Mary and I were held up for two hours at uh, at, a, at an MVA Ganalda way. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, there was a truck that uh, went off the road up at Ganalda. So, you know, that we need to keep pushing, and that that's another point. We need to keep pushing the four lanes north. We need world class four lane divided highway across the east coast of Australia. You see, Victoria and New South Wales have that, or it's on the absolute verge of completion. I think it might have been completed now and and opened in New South Wales. They have four lanes. We have four lanes going from Melbourne to Gympie, and that's where it stops. Now, that's not good enough. It's not good enough. And 
We've got another section of highway at Tyro that's uh, that's going to be built, and it's in the the uh, design phase as we speak. Now that's another thing that I've ruffled a few feathers on because I. I've Do you enjoy doing that with these guys, the politicians that think that they're politicians for their own gain? Do you enjoy ruffling the feathers? I don't enjoy it. I I do it because it. I'd, I'd much prefer not to. I much prefer not to have have to uh, uh, go to the mattresses on on these sorts of things. Um, but when you're when you see something that's fundamentally wrong, like the the Tyro bypass, they're building nine kilometres of brand new Greenfield Highway, about 40 k's north of the where the four lanes end, and they're building two lanes. Why would you do that? There's a, I'm told there's in excess of 10,000 vehicle movements a day. We know that all that it'll take is a low loader to break down or someone to um, have, a, have an accident. And not only have you got a, a safety issue, you've got massive congestion. So why not future-proof it? Why not do what the rest of the east coast of Australia has done? Are we the poor cousins in Queensland? Well, when it comes to the national highway i feel like we're treated that way but it's the commonwealth funds 80 percent of the um, bruce highway a national highway this is where a lot of people don't understand is that uh, the responsibility for the national highway in terms of delivery is the state responsibility the commonwealth funds 80 percent of it but we don't we we can't force the state to upgrade a piece of the Bruce Highway. Of course, we can paying eighty percent. We can encourage them to do. Uh, That's a big things. amount of encouragement. Though. It is a big amount of encouragement, and and but we need to push them harder because we've got a situation at the moment where this Tyro bypass, the state minister Mark Bailey, is refusing to budge on it. Uh, I had a discussion with him early in the piece, and and when I identified that this would be a death road that they're going to build, a brand new road that was going to kill people. And to his credit, he gave me a commitment they'd put some sort of barrier up the middle. And I, I do commend him for that, but it's not enough. It's not enough. There's still a, 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 a greater risk of traffic trauma. There's a greater risk in any number of different uh, scenarios with two lanes, even with a dividing barrier. Head-on collisions aren't the only risk on a road. So I'm pushing hard to, to make sure that that's four lanes. The community wants it. Um, to fund that, uh, I need the agreement, first and foremost, from the state to put a plan forward. But second of all, I need uh, Michael McCormack, the leader of the Nationals, who's the Minister for Regional Development and Transport, to step up and push hard for this. This is regional Australia. Michael McCormack's the leader of a party uh, that champions regional Australia, yet we're getting a second-class road uh, in regional Australia that by its traffic numbers, by every measure, it should be four lanes. Um, now, going back to do I enjoy ruffling feathers? No, I don't. But it, one of the reasons I don't is because it upsets me when people who have been given this huge responsibility and this huge ability to deliver, don't deliver when they should and when it's obvious that they should. Uh, and that's when I've got to kick in and say, well, no, 
I'm going to use this position of being a federal parliamentarian to ensure that I do my absolute best to make it happen. And, Are you and, a maverick and, politician? Would you describe yourself as the the maverick uh, along the Barnaby lines? Others describe me as a maverick. Um, others use that term, but and 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 once again, it's it's for others to 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 judge me um, on my performance. But I have had a few wins, you know. I have had a few wins, and um, and I haven't had those wins by doing things necessarily conventionally how do you get on with with uh, mccormack great he's he, he michael mccormack is one of nature's gentlemen he's a good guy why didn't you support him in the leadership spill with barnaby joyce well uh i think the the main thing there was and uh, uh, that i thought we could be doing a better job and i that's why I, I called the uh, called the spill. Um, that's a, a matter for the party room, and it was a matter decided by the party room, and it's a matter that's in the in the past now. Do you wish that it was kept in house? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, one of the things that when when that occurred, I didn't do any media. I didn't do any media. I was criticised heavily by the media for not doing media by some some. <laughs> elements of the media <laughs> for not doing media. But damned I, if you do and damned if you don't. But I, I wanted it to be something that was dealt with by the party room and and uh, and something that we could move on from regardless of the outcome. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was what it, what it was. But it's in the past now. And I tell you what, we're in a different world now than what we were then. We... Uh, no one had really heard of the coronavirus at that stage. It was uh, early in the year. Well, they had, but not in the, in the terms that we see it now. Uh, we didn't have heading towards $1 trillion worth of uh, debt for the nation. So, so how are we paying for the road and those sorts of things, those big infrastructure projects that need to happen when so much money is being spent to cover the coronavirus. Well, look, we were we were heading towards five hundred million dollars worth of debt uh, prior to the coronavirus, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. But we're in a lot better position than than many other nations that we trade with and we deal with internationally. We have to borrow money. Uh, that's that's the reality. But we have to pay that back, and the only way we can pay that back is to get the economy going. And get out of the way of business. Obviously, we've got many challenges with with the stage of this pandemic that we're at. We haven't got uh, an effective vaccine yet. Hopefully, it's imminent. Um, so we're seeing spikes, as as we are right about now, spikes in in New South Wales and Victoria. And until we have a vaccine, that that's going to be life with the coronavirus. So we've got to navigate our way through this section of of this global pandemic we've done that to the best of our ability uh, with wage subsidies which is job keeper we we've put billions and billions and billions of dollars into business to keep them alive uh, some to incubate uh, and and to keep them going by subsidizing and keeping those employees connected to employers so when we come out the other side of this we can we can recover as quickly as possible. Do you see light at the end of the tunnel? 
Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, Australia's got some incredible assets. Um, you know, we, we've got um, a, a thriving uh, resources industry that's helping us at the moment. We've got an abundance of land. We've got high-quality education and healthcare. Australia has got everything going for it, and we need to support the private sector, get out of the way of the private sector, let them do what they do best, which is uh, growing and and innovating, and uh, we need to support them where we can. Are we over-governed then? Uh, well, I, I think we are. I think we are. I think we... I, li- I believe that uh, in smaller government, uh, I don't think government should be intruding in everyone's life and, and, and intruding in everyone's business. I understand the obvious, which is that, of course, you need strong regulations to help everyone function fairly, but at the same time, uh, they need to be as minimal as possible. If you were to get out the big stick and draw a line through one aspect of government to reduce the amount of government, what would you do? I think tax reform, um, where government is imposing. I, I, I'm a believer in that lower taxes stimulates the economy. We've done uh, we've done some work in that regard, some good work. But uh, you know, and and I tell the state government to get rid of payroll tax. Uh, that there is not a business person I know that just isn't appalled by payroll tax, a, a, a penalty for employing people. You know, it was one of the taxes that uh, we should be we that should have gone with the GST, um, and it's 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 a disgrace, really. The payroll uh, tax stamp duty is going in New South Wales. Well, you know, we'll believe it when we see it with all of these things. But uh, yeah, <laughs> look, uh, re- reducing tax, giving people incentive to work, uh, giving people uh, incentive to innovate and you know we've done some great things in terms of uh, research and development and tax offsets and uh, immediate depreciation of assets in businesses to stimulate business and get people doing what they want to do we just need to get out of their way and help them where we can okay now you're in parliament you've uh, had a fairly in some ways meteoric rise were you in the right place at the right time becoming the deputy speaker uh, I suppose I was, <laughs> or, or I am. Uh, I am the, de- the deputy speaker of the House of Representatives, and uh, it's a position that I didn't. Um, um, it's a position I didn't look to take on. It wasn't something that I I aspired to greatly, but it was something that came up, and and I thought well, it was suitable for for, for me. Spoke to uh, some of my colleagues briefly about it, and they voted for me. And, uh, and that's where I've ended up. And it's a great honour to, to work with the current speaker, Tony Smith, who is um, acknowledged as, as one of the, the real uh, high-level speakers that fed- since Federation began. Um, he's in his third, uh, third term as the speaker. And uh, he is a, a fellow that is a great mentor, someone I get along very well with. Someone who I've learnt an incredible amount from uh, and I, I see it as a great, real great honour and privilege to be the Deputy Speaker in a team that's led by him. What has it taught you about the parliamentary process, being the Deputy Speaker and being involved at that level? 
at an individual level, it's it's. Uh, I find it because I'm a very independent thinker. I mean, I'm absolutely about the party that I that that uh, I represent um, as as an LNP member. First and foremost, for, foremost, I always represent the people of Wide Bay first. But I am a member of the LNP, and I sit. Uh, with the National Party in, in again in, in um, Parliament. But one of the things that it's uh, sh- shown me and, and uh, one of the things that I have to practice is an absolute unbiased view when I'm sitting in that chair. Uh, there is... Do you? Do you sometimes go, mm, uh, no, nah, sorry, fellas. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think that I do. Um, and once again, it's one of those things that others will judge, but I, I can't see. Obviously, there is a, a division, and you have the government and you have the opposition. Both sides play an absolute integral uh, role in our parliamentary democracy. To sit there and effectively say there isn't a Labor Party and there isn't a, na- a, a, a Liberal National Government, and I'm when I sit in that chair, I'm not a member of that Liberal National Government, uh, is, has its, I suppose it's something definitely that you have to consider all of the time. How do you get on with your Labor colleagues? Because obviously well enough they've voted for you. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know whether it's absolutely <laughs> because they, they think I'm a great guy. But um, oh, look, this is Australia. We are the luckiest country in the world. Other other governments and, and forms of government and representation in other areas of the world, opposition and government are killing each other. It's not like that in Australia. Uh, they're on the other side of the chamber when I do sit with the government. They're Australians on, on that other side. And when we walk out of that chamber, we're all Australians. And uh, I, I consider a lot of those people on the other side to be friends of mine, good friends, people I... I trust, uh, like the, the vast majority of the people on, on my side, sitting in that chair gives you definitely a, a better appreciation for that uh, when you have to adjudicate as to what's going on in, in the parliament. How did you feel the first time when you sat down and it was Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, and you were in the chair? It must have been a real rush. Yeah, I was hit with the the gravity of the moment, that's for sure. Uh, If you uh, look at the election of the Deputy Speaker when I was elected, uh, Tony Smith, the Speaker, makes a comment there of congratulations and uh, uh, you're on duty in half an hour, so you better get ready. (laughs) Uh, Words to that effect. Um, Sitting in that chair, uh, chairing the Parliament of the Nation is an experience that not many people get to do and my view as I said in the beginning of the podcast I've always seen myself as an as an average bloke Uh, and for an average bloke uh, to be sitting there with the Prime Minister on one side and the leader of the opposition on the other or in the matters of public importance debate with the government on one side and the opposition on the other chairing that is, is huge and I, I did feel that the first time I sat there and I feel it every time I feel that every time I arrive in Canberra for Parliament I, I look at that 
when I'm heading towards work, I'm walking up in the morning from a distance, you can see the flag flying over everything around. Uh, when I see those, those big stainless steel beams going into the sky, I just think, the day I don't feel in awe of this and the day I don't see the absolute immensity of what's happening here and what I'm involved in is the day that I need to hang up my shingle or is the day that I need to get out of politics and give someone else a go. Are you a career politician? I hope not. Mm. But in saying that, I I mean, what is a career politician? I don't. I could be in politics potentially for, for some time, but I don't... I think the term career politician... Uh, has a, a connotation of someone who's acting in a way that they want to be there for a long time. And I think some people are, and I think you can't get away from it. Yeah, and I, I'm not... That's not how I judge what I do or how I'm what I'm motivated by. I'm motivated by achieving uh, things for the people of Wide Bay and the nation and getting the job done and, yes, sometimes making the hard decisions that... Maybe some of my other colleagues aren't prepared to stand up on. Is it because you were working in the back room for a long time as a member of the uh, the LNP and working uh, in certain positions uh, in the LNP that you were used to the procedure? Oh, uh, look, I don't think so. I I I uh, I would probably say the greatest influence on the way I act and the way I conduct myself and my style of representation is learnt through being a, a policeman, uh, having to make those decisions on what is right and what is wrong. Uh, and, you know, if you go, if, if you're genuine about that and you go with your heart, you'll get it right most of the time. Um, and as every police officer that pulls on a uniform every day has to make tough decisions a lot tougher than what I've had what I have to make regularly uh, and they they do it on a sense of right and wrong they, obviously there's rules and regulations but you can't go in in the heat of the moment for these guys you can't go pulling out the you know the operational procedures manual you've got to sometimes you just got to make a call and they've got a strong sense of right and wrong and I think that's where I learned a lot of my my skills when it comes to advocating and and taking on a challenge i mean i remember you and i you were helping me with a a a road safety video when i was the acting officer in charge at kilkeven and uh we were producing this video together about fatalities and uh and how people needed to slow down Uh, and within 20 minutes of doing that i remember it well going through the script we were both at a fatal. You mm. were there and I was there. I'd been called. It was just down the road and it was a fatality. Experiences like that can't help but make you a good decision maker under pressure and a little bit fearless. Um, not not too fearless where it's... But, but it, hey, if you can do that, as I've said on a number of occasions, if I can... And, and I say this... And I, I commend every police officer that's serving in an emergency service when I say this, because this is about them. Uh, if you can tell somebody that a member of their family is no longer with them, give that dreaded death message, you've experienced the hardest 
conversation you're ever going to have with anyone. And I can tell those police officers that are doing that every day, you'd tell the Prime Minister that he's going to have a Royal Commission into the banks. Pretty easy, trust me. It's an interesting thing because we were out on the road that particular day. Mm. You were as the police officer at the scene of the accident and I was Jerno come television cameraman. Yeah. So we were both doing our jobs. But I remember watching and just seeing how it really affected you. And it does tend to affect you. And mm. what are the long-term ramifications of what you've had to endure out of that? Well, um, I, I make it no secret that, uh, that I live with post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. And uh, was something that, I, um, that happened to me quite some years before you and I were there on that day. So uh, I was living with that and managing it when I was a police officer as well. And a lot of police and, and a lot of people that, uh, whether it's the armed uh, forces or whether it's emergency services domestically, end up seeing things that trigger their mind or become ingrained in their mind uh, and they can cause, cause conditions like post-traumatic stress. Um, I was a Beyond Blue Bureau speaker before I entered Parliament. Um, so it was always something I was passionate about. One of the things that after my 16 years in the police that I was, I was always felt very, very committed to was letting other police who were going through the experiences that I went through know that, hey, listen, it's okay. You're gonna get through this. Don't worry, you're not a failure. I've been there, you know. So that was that was really important to me before I went into politics. How did it affect you directly from all of the accidents and the carnage you saw on the roads? How was it affecting you, affecting your family and the people around you? How did you uh, deal with it? Well, I, I uh, so after a period of really intense um, traffic accident investigation on the Bruce Highway primarily, um, for me, the wheels fell off uh, for a period of time and back in the 2000s. And um, it was a hard road back. It was a really hard road back. Like I, I remember, you see, you do put these things in the back of your mind when they're the, the signs that you're not coping or the signs that you're, you're starting to fail in a, in a culture like the police. You've got to be ten foot tall and bulletproof. You do. That's the way you've got to see yourself, and 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 anything that threatens that, you you don't want to bar off. So you you deny it to yourself for quite some time. And this is where what drove me to help others is if you get in early, it's so much easier to recover from these things and to get on with a normal productive life or and or to start managing your symptoms. You say the wheels fell off. Mm. How did they fall off for you? Well, um, as I said, I, I was in somewhat in denial about things starting to not go so well. My concentration went. I started to have nightmares. Um, I started to not be able to sleep. Um, and I started being triggered by uh, things, whether it be the smell of a, a hot engine or the taillights of a particular model of car that had, I'd been involved had been involved in a fatality or some something like that uh, they would start to trigger me I, I remember one of the first times 
that I experienced uh, what was a real PTSD moment was I had been to a, a fatal and there was a, a new model car and it was a long, exhausting investigation at the scene. It was hot and um, the, day, the day was done. Everything was, was being completed and they were pulling the car out of the, the creek that it was in and as it came out, I could see its taillights it was a new model for that car and I didn't think anything of that and a few months later I was sitting in the police car on the passenger side of the police car and uh, that that model car was in front and the person put their brakes on the lights shone on that and and I went into a complete uh, moment of panic Um, my brain just had a fight or flight reaction to those tail lights I, I rendered me almost completely incapable of doing anything at that moment uh, and I didn't know what was going on I didn't I, you know it took me back to and I knew what I knew what that was about but I didn't know what was going on in my head I knew they were the tail lights of that car um, so you put those things behind you you try and you, you forge on. You want to be a strong uh, symbol for your for your kids and and, and a strong uh, a person for your colleagues and 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 for the community. Uh, but then eventually, if you keep denying that these things are happening, if you keep denying that, you know, yep, I've got to get to work. You know, it doesn't matter that I didn't sleep last night or. Uh, eventually you can't do your job and that's that's where I ended up for a period of time and I was lucky that the Queensland Police Service was so good in in helping me back uh, through you know through through all of the support that they gave me I remember there were a lot of a lot of police officers that were in my position that were were out um, but it was my goal to get back it was my goal to be and a fully operational police officer again, and I tried and I tried, and it was an, it was a, it was a bloody tough journey. But I got back, and um, you know I did it successfully. And and it, and that that incident that we referred to before was quite some years after my return, and I was resilient enough. Sure, I had to manage myself, and sure, we well, could see I knew the it triggers. Directly, it directly affected you, and you can see mm. that. And mm. that must be a tough thing because, as you say, you were desperate to get back to work because that's what you are trained for. That's right. And, um, you know, I, always, I had young sons and a young daughter and I always saw myself as being, you know, they'll be proud of their dad as a, as a you know, policeman. And, and to think that I was broken was, was hard. And I, I, yeah, it was something that I, I had to work really, really hard. But it's turned out to be one of the good things in my life because... I now know a lot more about Lou O'Brien. I wonder if I would be the Deputy Speaker or a Member of Parliament if I hadn't had those experiences, to be honest with you. How's it improved you? Well, I just have a a much better understanding of my limits. Um, I, and and my limits are pretty high (laughs) if it's... (laughs) I mean, I've, I still have to be mindful of triggers to do with my PTSD, which are very specifically around traffic accidents, sirens, certain things. And I've got old 
friends, retired policemen that have lived the same life that I do, fully perfectly functioning uh, older people, uh, but they still, you know, if they if they see or hear something that just triggers one of those memories, um, they've just got to be careful. And I'm like that, but it, in doing so, it gave me a great understanding of how 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 much I can take. Mm. Uh, and I look, I do look back on those times, and um, and I think, well, a lot of things that I go through now in in politics are nothing compared to what I've overcome. puts it into perspective. Yeah, what I've overcome there, um, it's uh, it's not something I look at as as bad. And 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 if I can tell that to other people who are going through it now, uh, and say, listen, you know, because there was a point where in my life where I didn't think I was going to be. Um, much good you know that was that was a that was a a realistic um possible outcome of where i was at did you realize that at the time i i I wondered whether i would ever be able to come good and whether how much didn't matter how much um, exercise treatment whatever i I just wanted to look am i never going to be able to work again am i never going to be able to contribute again and i'd want to and and one of the great things about this opportunity that I have now where people can look at me and say well this guy's kicking a few goals I can say to those people who are in the depths of those moments now it's okay you can you can fight your way through this it's hard yakka but trust me there is light on the other side of this and and you can come out the other side of this a different person you're never going to be that same person again is that better yeah I, I, I definitely I definitely think it is. I'm stronger now than I was before that happened to me. Do you find some people look down on you because of what you've gone through, or is it pretty positive? Yeah, across look, the board? I know that some people uh, have criticised me for speaking openly about it in politics. Uh, you know, speaking openly about PTSD and mental health. Uh, some people have criticised me and said you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't. You really? shouldn't. Yeah, that still that still occurs, and and. Um, but I do it knowing full well uh, who I am, where I am, and what I'm doing. And if I can help, uh, and I and I did a, a, a piece in the Courier Mail um, at the beginning of the year or mid year, outlining a lot of my journey. And the overwhelming response was was thank you, um, thank you for doing that because. Uh, this is what we've got to do to reduce the stigma associated with mental ill health. Um, so there, for that one or two people who will criticise me and say you're showing yourself to be weak uh, or you you shouldn't be doing that because they, they don't affect me. Are they just showing themselves to be weak? Well, that's for others to judge if they say it. But um, I've got a very different view and, and uh, I see part of my work uh, you said before what are the achievements and I talked about the road and the Royal Commission into the banks uh, I see breaking down the stigma associated with mental ill health as absolutely one of the biggest things that I can do um, you have a position like that I have and you're the sort of bloke that I am I can't not take that opportunity to, to, to say listen you know it's not, you know, the, you, the stigma associated with mental ill health is unjustified because 
There are so many great treatments out there and you can get in early um, and you can live a very, very good life. Uh, you can live a better life. Um, not to take that opportunity would just be an absolute failure in my eyes uh, of my, my, myself. How did you feel making your maiden speech to Parliament when you were able to talk about these sorts of things? Uh, it, it was um, it was okay. Uh, it was a it was a you know it's part of the journey. It's an incredible honour. Um, I've made some big speeches. I've addressed the United Nations uh, General Assembly regarding road safety. Uh, you make these in public life. You you do these things and. They're very meaningful, and uh, but once again, um, they're an opportunity. Well, your maiden speech is an opportunity to outline what you're about. I spoke about um, jobs in Wide Bay. I spoke about aged care. I spoke about dollar milk. I, I spoke about a lot of the things that I've been uh, absolutely a part of improving. So that's your opportunity to say, "This is what I'm. This is what I want to do." And now after five years, I can go back and say, well, if, you, if there was any doubt that this is what I was trying for, go to that first speech. Uh, that's what I was about and that's what I was having a, having a crack at. Um, but you, you, your first speech is a, is, is a momentous moment. It is your first speech. The first time you walk into that, that chamber in there is, is an incredible incredible moment you walk in there and you've seen it on TV and you've, you know what's happened in there. Uh, some of the big events and decisions in in Australia. Um, like I say, there's something wrong with you, with you if you walked in there and you didn't feel in awe. You've walked out of the uh, LNP once. You're back in the fold the, again. The National Party, the Parliamentary well, National the parli- Party. You've walked out of the room yeah. as such and hence you fell into the Speaker's role. What did um, Damien Drum say to you, the guy that was supposed to be the speaker at the time when you fell into the role? What was his reaction? Well, Damien and I get along fine. Uh, he's, Damien's a, a good representative for the, for the seat of Nichols in Victoria, a very different seat to, to Wide Bay. And he's a guy with a, a lot, of, lot of experience. I, I um, obviously had a view that I... I should be the the deputy speaker and not him. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have put myself forward. But that's politics. I was elected by the people. By there cannot be any uh, clearer way of of being the deputy speaker. The parliament voted, and uh, I was elected with the support of quite a few of my national party uh, government colleagues as the deputy speaker. Uh, Damien is the chief government whip. He's a guy now that I'm. Back in the National Party, I, I've had a couple of chats too, and look, he's he's a big boy. Are you going to um, be stirring the nest, as it, as it were, and uh, with any other leadership spills, or are you happy to support Michael McCormack? Well, Michael's the leader. Uh, I, I made it clear in the in the media that I'm not going back to destabilise or uh, to do the numbers or anything like that. I'm. The world has changed since the 10th of February 2020 greatly and um, we've got some big issues that we need to tackle, I think. Um, What's the biggest issue then on your plate at the moment that I'm you think we need to do? Getting the economy, uh, being in a position to bounce back from from this uh, 
global pandemic economically is the biggest thing for everyone because it filters into everything, whether it be healthcare, whether it be building better roads, uh, it filters into everything. If we can't, if we can't uh, pay our bills, well, we can't build Section D of the Bruce Highway. If we can't pay our bills as a nation, uh, we can't pay for healthcare. Um, that is, it's getting our economy going so the government can run properly should be the biggest priority for every Australian. Are you a policeman sitting in Parliament still? Do you still have that policeman uh, mentality as such when you're in there because you've still got to make decisions as you were when you're on the beat? I think we all take a, you know, our, our previous experiences in life and everything that we do in from that time on. There's lawyers in there that will look at look at certain issues through the the lens of a lawyer, and there's there's nurses and there's policemen and and uh, public servants and lobbyists uh, and and political staffers. They're all there that bring their life experiences. So in that context, yeah, absolutely, um, and, and I'm proud of it. I'm, I'm proud of what I've done and where I've come from. Uh, I'm, um, I think I'm, I'm respected within the parliament um, because of the person that I am and, and that person is, has uh, certainly come about as a result of being a policeman. Why policing in the first place? What got you into it when you're, say, going through high school? What were your career choices? What did you want to do? Well, I, I had a bit of a, a rocky start in terms of my uh, entry into adult life. I, I, my <laughs> mum, Don't we all? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I left school um, the, last, the last year that I actually completed it was year nine. My mum had motor neurone disease. So I left school after that and uh, to nurse mum and we moved to Queensland when I was uh, 15 and um, and we nursed mum until she passed away at home and uh, I'm with myself and my father um, and uh, when that was over, as you can imagine, it's not easy uh, for anyone nursing it's a lot uh, of trauma for a 15-year-old. Yeah, to well, at 16. Um, I turned 16 shortly after we got there. Um, but, look, I w- my mind was just not in a, a space to go from uh, spoon-feeding and helping to change and, and nurse a dying parent to jump straight back into school. So um, my opportunities were limited. Opportunities were limited when I when that experience was over and... Uh, it took me a while to get my get on my feet, and uh, and it was when uh, I was in my twenties that I really thought, and and when I started my family and the kids, that I I thought right, I, I've really got to get a, a career, and and one of the main motivating factors was, what would my kids be proud of? Who you know, what, what job would I do that would make me would make my boys at that time uh, proud of me, and that was policing. And and I always I, I was fit and healthy, and I liked helping people, and I thought it'd be a good good fit, and it was. And I'm, I'm it was a very positive positive part of my life. How close are you to your father, and were you at the time? It must have been an incredible thing to go through. Yeah, look, my father's passed away now, um, and. Um, yeah, we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things like a lot of people, but 
I focus on my family that I've I've created and I'm very close to my family my kids my boys and my daughter um, I uh, I'm and my granddaughter and, and granddaughter another granddaughter on the way I'm the luckiest bloke in the world to have my family and and uh, they're what makes me tick are you a good dad being away so much or do you wish you were giving them more time well this is one of the things that I I often reflect upon because I when my kids were kids when they were at home my focus was about staying home and being a dad and they grew up so fast oh, they, they just seemed to, they you seemed saw to, it. yeah I did and they seemed to yeah you turn around they were a foot taller yeah right? so I, w- I would never have taken on this role when I had an active role uh, and when I say active when I had a real hands-on role of being a dad um, it was only after they'd left home really I Eve was still at, at home uh, but they were at, adults effectively that I thought okay now now is a time that I can really do this and uh, and that was a big factor uh, for me making that decision because if my kids were younger I, I think it'd be very very difficult to to be in their lives although there's plenty that do do it successfully um, and they've got the advantage of having FaceTime and all of these things and, and taking their kids to Canberra and there's a lot of things those kids will see that my kids at that age were not exposed to good things. Um, but for me, and, and Lou O'Brien couldn't have done it when I had kids that were needed a dad at home in my view. How do you deal with the travel? Because it is quite extensive going down to Parliament and back and forward, back and forward. Mm. How do you deal with the amount of travel you've got to do now? And especially now that you are the Deputy Speaker, it's uh, increased even further. Yeah, so uh, I've had to attend every sitting of Parliament this year. Um, Even when we had very limited sittings, when there were only... I can't remember the exact numbers, but virtually everyone was not there. Uh, but we had to get certain legislation. At one stage, we had to go down and sit for one day. Um, so I've had I've attended that and had to attend that uh, to give Tony and Tony Smith the speaker, and to fulfil those duties where I can. And this is something a little bit unique to me. I ride my motorbike to Canberra. Um, I've got a Triumph twelve hundred uh, triple, and um, that's something that I do uh, that I, I like to do um, it keeps me it's, it's, it's a good exercise in gathering my thoughts before I get to Parliament it's a good exercise in unwinding on the way home uh, but it's also just another good opportunity for me to stop at servos and have a chat to people and they don't know I'm a federal member of Parliament and I don't actively go out and tell them that I'm, they're not in Wide Bay I'm, but I just like to canvas them and see what their, their views of the world are and how we're going and and um, 99.9% of the time, they never know they're talking to the Deputy Speaker of, of the Parliament. But it's good to get an honest appraisal of how, you, how the government's doing. What's the single biggest thing that they do tell you when you're on the road and you talk to people? Throughout the pandemic, there has been a lot of positivity in terms of how we've handled it. Uh, there have been, uh, particularly from business people, even at the service station, um, the, the, the job keeper kept them going would would have uh, would have certainly they would never have survived without it uh, other other responses our responses as a nation have been have been good there's a lot of uh, goodwill out there towards the government and it's as a result of how we've handled the the coronavirus Scott Morrison the prime minister there's 
I, I get a lot of positive feedback about his his uh, response as the Prime Minister and um, bringing together the National Cabinet and taking a leadership role in that regard. It's, uh, I couldn't imagine, in terms of the polit- uh, of being a, a parliamentary, uh, a parliamentarian or being a uh, in public service, there probably wouldn't be too many more difficult or challenging jobs than what, other than a, a wartime prime minister, than what Scott Morrison's doing at the moment as as the prime minister through this global pandemic, and I think he's he's doing a sterling job. I think he's he's a guy that is a very very much um, about serving. He he's there. Uh, and he, he's focused on the commitment that we gave Australians at the election to give good government in the face of, it, of no matter what. I mean, when we went to the election last time, uh, the coronavirus wasn't there, but we gave a commitment to give the best government that we can. And, and that's what, for me, what characterises him. In my dealings, he is absolutely f- 100% laser-focused on delivering the best government for Australians uh, that we can. Um, so, yeah, he has my, my support, absolutely, obviously, but he, he does in genuinely as a, as, as a Prime Minister. Does the coronavirus, as you see it, is it a positive or a negative for the government then? Oh, look, I, I'd, it's just a challenge, a massive challenge. Uh, you know, people, it's for the commentators and, and others to to judge whether tough times put the wind in the, in the sails of the, of the government or they don't. And, and it's for the people to make that decision at an election as to whether we've done a good job. That's who ultimately it is up to. But all we can do is our best. I, I've got a, a good relationship with, a very good relationship with the health minister um, and the treasurer and the Prime Minister, and uh, I think they're three blokes, uh, three three Australians who have done an outstanding job in the most difficult times in, in public life. Does it worry you driving to and from Canberra with the coronavirus sort of, uh, sort of hotspots around the place? Does it worry you going down there and going here and travelling the way you have to? Yeah, look, I, I'm obviously very mindful of it, and I've had to quarantine on, on upon return. Uh, once and I avoid any hot spots um, absolutely and I have to get a, a, um, a permit to get back into the uh, have had to in the past to get the permit to get back into Queensland um, like all of us we have to be diligent uh, and aware of of what we do how we do it when we do it uh, in and that we're doing the right thing by our fellow citizens and ourselves in terms of the coronavirus. That means checking uh, health uh, websites in New South Wales and Queensland, understanding what's happening, where it's happening, and what your responsibilities are. So, uh, an example would be when when Sydney was um, a hot spot, and I was in Canberra, I had to go out west on the bike to come in. Uh, out up along the Newell Highway, as opposed to going up the Pacific, or, or at that stage even even uh, up towards the New England Highway, so they're minor inconveniences compared to what some other Australians are having to go through at the moment. Did you find any hostility due to the fact that you were travelling so much? 
No, no. Uh, everyone's been very, very understanding. Uh, there's a lot of travel that we do. Um, uh, I, I probably travel. I'm, I'm. This year's been an exception because we've all been l- limited by. The, normally, you're involved in committee work, which can take you around the country and in different places. But as the deputy speaker, I don't do that. Um, so I'm actually more available to the people of Wide Bay. The, the travel's not a, not, not a big issue and everyone understands. I mean, our, our uh, parliament is in Canberra. Uh, once upon a time, they used to have to take our horse and coach down there and they'd spend months of the year down there dealing with things and then come back and it was done in big sittings like that. We're very lucky now that I can take a, a day or uh, at most two days out of my calendar um, to, to travel to and from. Um, over the course of a year, it's it's uh, something people understand. You say about Warren Truss, who you took over from. What has he said about how you've gone so far? Has he given you a report card? Uh, Warren is a, a bloke who, who very much understands that I'm a different person to Warren. Uh, and and But he always, on the times that I've asked him for advice, he's always given fearless and, and frank advice but then he's always followed it up with well Lou you're a different different person to me um, and you need to do what what's right. So as far as um, political mentors who's the person that you aspire to be politically? Well that's a hard one because you take aspects of a whole bunch of people um, whether attributes of leadership uh, intellect uh how people uh, work within their own electorate. Uh, so I wouldn't say there's any one individual who I aspire to be or who I wish I was like that. I mean, there's uh, I t- take little bits from a lot of different areas, and uh, but I'm always trying to improve myself, always trying to be the best representative I can be. Uh, and and some of the best advice I get are from citizens of Wide Bay who'll tell me something and. and what say, are they telling you? Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> be be keep you know. Um, don't go down there and and just toe the line for the sake of towing the line. They 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 like the fact that I stand up. Were they worried about that uh, you were going to do that when you first started? I think there's always an expect. Uh, there's always a period of consideration where the everyone look people don't go into politics saying well you know at their pre-selection speech okay so what i'm going to do is i'm going to go down there i'm going to tell you all these positive things that i'm going to change and then when i'm going down there i'm actually not going to do anything or i'm going to sit on on my bum down there and just try and be as quiet and not upset as many people as possible people don't say that when they go into politics they always come out with a grand uh list of how good they are and what they're going to achieve um but it's up to the people to, to decide on, on how you're going. Um, and they will look at you and, and make an assessment. Is this guy uh, or girl, is this person delivering? Are they, are they living up to those things that they said they would do pre-election or pre-pre-selection? Are they actually standing up? Are they a strong voice for my community? Uh, their, their decisions and assessments that your constituency has to make I'd like to think that I'm, I've delivered billions of dollars worth of infrastructure to the area. I've stood up on 
issues of national significance in my first term, um, I've been available to, I've, as, as best as I can, been available to, to the constituents who put me there. Does it surprise you how busy you are? Uh Look, it's not it's not a surprise, but it's a challenge at times. You do get very busy, and and uh, but that's 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 part of the job. And um, uh, you know, if you're not busy, there's something wrong once again. What is the best part of the job, and the worst part, for that matter? The best part of the job is a hard one. I think uh, I, quite often. Uh, the the wins that we have, my staff. I've got incredible staff, and the staff do so much. So much of the workload that comes into my office is 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 um, taken by staff who know who to ring, where, and what department to fix something that's wrong. Uh, quite often, my staff will come to me, and they will have fixed something, and uh, that. Is a huge. There's a huge amount of satisfaction there, because that can, whilst it mightn't seem like a major event to anyone else, uh, somebody's DVA issued um, or somebody's pension problem that's holding up uh, their pension can be a, a massive stressor on a, on a senior Australian, massive, and and when I either help. Or someone, or one of my staff help. Uh, that's that's great. So it's not always the huge. It's not always the addressing the General Assembly of the United Nations or cutting the ribbon on a on a new piece of infrastructure. It sometimes it's the the knowledge that you have just had a huge positive influence on on an everyday citizen of Wide Bay. That's that's what I get a great deal of satisfaction from. What's something about Lou O'Brien that most people don't know? Because you're a pretty, pretty, <laughs> you're a pretty public figure yeah, these days. that's right. I, I, I put it all out there. Um, look, that I'm a keen photographer, that I love photography, and uh, sometimes um, as part of relaxation, and part of de-stressing, I find that photography is a great way of relaxa- relaxing. It takes you out of your own mind. You know, you're a photographer, you're a cameraman, you're, you know about videography and all of those things. You know when you've got to frame a shot and you've got to look at everything that's not going on in your head and, and, and capture something of value? Uh, I love that. I love taking bird bird photography of birds bird photographs and I love taking photographs of my grandkids so yeah probably that I'm that I'm a bit of a mad keen photographer what do you prefer portrait photography or landscape when it's my granddaughter in front of me it's all portraits (laughs) and uh but like I said I I don't mind I don't mind landscape photography but I I like birds uh bird photography especially if you've got a a decent uh, lens. I've got a, a one. It's a one to four hundred mil micro four thirds lens. So for your full frame equivalent, it's like an eight hundred mil um, lens. That's a biggie. Yeah, that's a biggie. Um, and you can take some pretty amazing 
photographs of birds from from some distance and uh, I love doing that it's you know it's uh, it's a bit like fishing you know you you, you never know you'll take a whole heap of photos hoping that you've got a few and then you'll you'll have a look and you might have an absolute cracker there uh, I, I really enjoy that it's funny i know the moment i hit the button that i've got a good shot yeah whether i might you, yeah. take i might take 20 yeah but i know when i've hit the magic button mm. what's your favorite photo that you've taken my favorite photos are always those with my granddaughter <laughs> you light up. you're a very hands-on dad yeah how are you as a granddad uh i'm the fun guy i'm the fun guy <laughs> my granddaughter comes to me uh whenever she drops around or we're looking after her and i am mr entertainment so it's uh yeah look i i just love being a granddad and uh it's it's something that um you know filters into it's me it's lou o'brien i uh it's a, it's a big part of my life it's a great leveler to have people that rely on you so implicitly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, before grandkids, you have kids, and um, and that's a, a huge responsibility and uh, something that I cherish, cherish greatly, uh, and you know, something that I as, as a copper, a lot of police officers see people that don't cherish that. And kids in distress and and that really great you know is, is, is hard to hard to come to terms with um and uh you 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 know you think about people that are in positions where they can't have kids and want them and and then all of a sudden you see these people that have kids and and don't do the right thing and, and you think how unfair that is sometimes but i understand how how precious it is and and uh yeah it's it's, it's extremely family is everything what have you still got to achieve in parliament what's the biggie that you really want to get across the line you've done banking you've done some pretty large infrastructure with roads what do you still want to do i i think there's so at a local level we've got to keep this four lanes going going north i'm not going to stop i may not win but i will do my best and i'm not going to stop trying on this tyro bypass until we've got four lanes um it's just something that is fundamentally obvious and needs to happen so that's one of the the big infrastructure projects uh, that I'm focused on we've got areas of our economy uh, local wide bay economy that have been hit hard through COVID like Noosa um, the tourism industry was one of the first to be turned off and is, is still struggling there are aspects of some of it is going quite well but there are aspects of tourism in places like Noosa that need help and uh, I'm focused in on there with with other representatives to try and help that help help there the list goes on and on and on in terms of what you need to deliver there's very high unemployment youth unemployment rates in wide bay and uh, I'm not going to rest until we've got more jobs more industry uh, and, and there needs to be an understanding of what's appropriate for where when, you, when you're fighting for these things. I mean, one of, the, one of the other aspects, aside from safety for section, for this Kuroi, uh, sorry, Kuroi, for this Tyro bypass, is if you build a better road, if you build a bigger piece of infrastructure, you attract more growth and better growth in that area. There's talk of 
solar um, industrial parks and everything around Tyro, that area will be so much more attractive to people looking to invest if there's that nine kilometre four lane section as opposed to a bottleneck uh, two lane. So whilst you look at things like that and you think, okay, that's a better road, it's going to get the the uh, spin-off or the, the outcomes when getting those good pieces of infrastructure are broader than that. They attract more and better investment into the area and that'll feed into lowering that high youth unemployment rate overall. So there are just so many things to keep fighting for. What about high-speed rail from Bundaberg to Brisbane to supplement the already congested Bruce Highway? Yeah, look, high-speed rail is obviously a topic that comes up regularly. It's something that uh, a lot of people like the idea of. High-speed rail is... uh, is ultimately the responsibility, as rail is, of the state government. But one of the things you need to really consider when it comes to high-speed rail is what is high-speed rail? Uh, is is a, a train that stops at every stop going to be high-speed rail? And then you've got to look at the economics of a, tri- a train that picks up X amount of uh, passengers in Bundaberg, X amount of passengers in Maryborough, X amount of passengers in Gympie that travels at 300 kilometres an hour, you've got to look at the economics of that and is that a good use of taxpayers' money if it doesn't stack up? Um, so I'm not saying it doesn't stack up, but you certainly have to look at all of these things before you start absolutely championing uh, a project like that. And because at the end of the day, the, the government doesn't have any money. We, we just spend your money. <laughs> That's what we do, taxpayers and, and uh, revenues that come in. That's not... Uh, Scott Morrison doesn't have that. That's not Scott Morrison's money. It's not Josh Frydenberg's money. It's the taxpayers of Australians and Australian citizens. It's their money. So we've got to be very, very diligent with, with how we handle it. How would you like to be remembered then? I'd like to be uh, remembered... <laughs> I just as a, as a, a bloke that had a go, maybe maybe did things. I, I, I don't want to be remembered as somebody who did things unconventionally. I don't think I think it's a bit of an indictment on poli- on, on Australian politics that I'm seen to be unconventional because I, I'm just doing things the way that they should be done. I think in terms of advocacy, um, but had a go. Somebody who ha- who had a go did his absolute best and, and, and had more wins than he had losses. Well, we hope you uh, keep winning the good fight. Lou O'Brien, thanks for joining us on Over the Bonnet. Thanks, Mark. It's a great pleasure, mate.